you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. And if you can, I would invite you to stand and let's read verses 14, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Here's the word of the Lord. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or fought in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Oh, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Father, we once again we beg your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be here working us. Help me to be faithful to you. Help the congregation to be faithful to you. Thank for your kindness towards us. Lord, we lift up the churches in Salem. Pray they'll be blessing your people here, that they'll be built up today in the holy faith. And as we prayed earlier today, we pray once again that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that they will taste taste that the Lord is good, that they will take hold of Christ, that they would learn through experience, the glory of knowing Christ, Him crucified, the power of His resurrection, and the privilege of suffering for His sake. So please be with our brothers and sisters there, Lord. Strengthen your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we continue our series this mini-series throughout Philippians, just to let you know, we have today and then two more Sundays, and then we are done with Philippians. Uh, has been very good to hear feedback, how glad you have been for, in light of us going back through all the major themes. Uh, but today and then two more Sundays, and then, Lord willing, we are done here. So as you're tracing major themes throughout Philippians, came to my mind one question, and the question is, what is the purpose of this local church? What is the purpose of this church? Why do we gather together frequently? Why did we enter into a relationship with each other? What is the purpose of that? What is the goal of our assembly? Meeting some pastors, oftentimes you, you hear pastors asking, 
What is your goal for the next five years, for the next ten years? What is the plan? What do you want to see the church doing in five to ten years? And, and that's connected to the purpose or the mission of the church. What is the purpose of the local church? What is the mission of the local church? And depending how you see the mission of the local church, that's going to dictate how you see each local church should be moving, how each local church should be moving and progressing. So, for example, if you see that the duty of the church, the major mission and purpose of the church is primarily to evangelize the lost, we will follow Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, seeker-sensitive, because then we need to make people feel comfortable at church. We need to make the lost feel like coming to church. Purpose-driven church. But you see, if that's our vision, that the mission of the church is to evangelize the lost, then we're going to work in our church for our church to be primarily centered on unconverted people. If you think that the mission of our church is to promote social equality, social justice, our church will become a philanthropic organization. If you think that local church should be involved, the mission of the church is to be involved politically, conquer politically, change laws, then our local church becomes a political party. If you think that the mission of the church is to teach the Bible, we need to come and learn the Bible, then the local church will become a seminary, an academic institution. So you see, there are good things in all of that, but when you make one of these things, the primary purpose of the church, the mission of the church, then we have a problem. The tragedy is that if we get the mission and purpose of our lives together wrong, we will fall into idolatry, frustration, and gospel compromise. That's how important it is. And I believe the key to understand the mission of a local church and the mission, the purpose of this church here is to look at our identity. We must know our identity in Christ in order to know the purpose of our lives together. Amen? It's because one is an officer that he must act as an officer. Because you have an identity as a mother, as a father, therefore you must act like a father and a mother. And we don't create our identity. It's God who creates our identity and therefore demands the mission of our lives together. And I believe one of the fundamental, crucial aspects of our identity in Christ is that of a kingdom of priests. And it's clear. Here is just the very explicit passages in the New Testament. So, for example, 1 Peter 2.9. 
But you are. That's who you are. We, the church, plural. A chosen race. You see, there are only two races. Chosen race and not chosen race. That's it. Not black, white, red, brown. There are two races. Chosen race and not chosen. Right here. But you are a chosen race. Look at that. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for His own possession. You see, your identity leads to your actions. Your mission. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. How about Revelation 1, 5-6? through 6? To Him, Jesus, who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10 And you, referring to the Lamb who was lame and now resurrected, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. That's our identity. A kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood. And therefore, that tells us what we are supposed to do. How we are supposed to live. And I think for us to better understand that, we need to... Look at the whole scope of the Scriptures. Look at the whole Bible to see where this identity is coming from. And that is going to help us understand the purpose of our local church, the mission of this body together. And what I want to do is two things today. First, just trace a brief biblical theology. Biblical theology is just when you're tracing a theme throughout the whole Scriptures. Similar to what we did with the the family theme, then with the military theme that we are tracing from Genesis to Revelation. That's what biblical theology is. So I'm going to do just a brief, very brief one on the royal priesthood. And then we're going to move and look at the church in Philippi as a priestly church. So to begin, and here is important for us to pay attention. Where does this identity of royal priesthood comes from. Where is the first instance where we have a king priest in the Bible? A royal priesthood. And I would argue that's in Genesis and going back to Adam. Adam is the first royal. He's God's son by creation. There is this the son of God. He's the king. He's a royal figure. And also he is a priest. So we have here the royal or regal priesthood begins in, begins in creation. Adam as a priest was to guard God's divine sanctuary, sanctuary and mediate God's blessing to the world. Adam is the first king priest in the Bible. That's very important to grasp because that's going to start to be developed throughout the, the, the rest of the Scriptures. So, for example, in Genesis, Genesis 
we read that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, He took the man, so the man was not in the Garden of Eden. God took the man, look at that, and put him, placed him in the Garden of Eden, the mountain of the Lord. And what was the purpose of placing him in Eden? To work and to keep it. That's the ESV. The two verbs, work, from where we get evad, servant, could be serve, worship. The same verb is translated as worship, serve, and keep. They're very interesting verbs because as you keep reading the rest of the Torah, the first five books, you see that these two verbs are used in reference to the priests working where? In the temple, in the tabernacle. So Moses is pointing to us through this language that what Adam was supposed to do in Eden was to be the priestly work of worship, serve, work, and guard, cultivate the temple, the tabernacle where God's presence was. As God's priest, Adam was called to worship, serve, keep this place clean. Another priestly activity we can see from Adam was that he was supposed to teach God's Torah, God's commandments, God's covenantal instruction to others. Look at the flow of this passage and see the priestly aspect here. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord what? The Lord God what? Commanded. There is a law, a Torah, an instruction. And now Adam receives this instruction, and what is he supposed to do? Pass to the future generations. Teach them the commandments of the Lord, all that the Lord had taught him. As a priest, Adam was to teach God's commandments. So, it seems that Adam's priestly activities involved worshiping the Lord... Remember, especially on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the culmination where man and God could enjoy each other. Being His holy presence. Serving the Lord by keeping the sanctuary clean. Obeying and teaching God's instructions. And expanding God's glory to beyond, beyond Eden to the rest of the world. Created order. But we know that Adam failed, and he failed as a priest because he was supposed to keep the sanctuary clean. And what do we find in Genesis 3? An unclean animal in the garden. Satan is there, and he should not be there. Adam failed as a priest in keeping the tabernacle, the sanctuary of the Lord, clean. Adam uh, Gregory Beale, he writes... Thus, the implication may be that God places Adam into a royal temple to begin to reign as his priestly vice-regent. In fact, Adam should always best be referred to as a priest-king, since it's only after the fall that priesthood is separated from kingship. Though Israel's eschatological expectation is of a messianic priest-king, when Adam failed to guard the temple, by sinning and letting a foul serpent to defile the sanctuary, he lost his priestly role 
And the cherubim took over the responsibility of guarding the garden temple. God stationed the cherubim to guard the way of the tree of life. The guarding function of the cherubim probably did not involve gardening, but keeping out the sinful and unclean, which suggests that Adam's original role, stated in Genesis 2.15, likely entailed much more than cultivating the soil, but also guarding the sacred space. And then we know that after Adam, there are some Adam figures that start coming. And you think about God in His grace calls Noah. And Noah also, is, we, found, we find Noah, suddenly find Noah in the mountain of the Lord. And what is Noah doing? He offers a sacrifice as a priest. And he's offering a sacrifice on behalf of humanity. He's acting as a priest. And he was supposed to teach his children, his children's children, God's commandments and His holiness. But we know that Noah also fails and his children fail. Culminates with Genesis 11. Tragedy of tragedies. The whole world is in exile, dispersed from from God's presence, just like Adam, far and far away. And Lord, in His mercy, calls whom? Abram. Or Abraham. The Lord calls him. And in Abraham also we see that God promises to bless, look at that, to bless the world through this man. So this man, or his seed, will be, will have a, a mediator role in blessing the nations that are dispersed from God's presence. We also see Abraham acting as a priest as he intercedes on behalf of Sodom. He's acting as a priest. But it's through Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, that God chooses to make a kingdom of priests. So that leads us to Israel as we are moving quickly here through the storyline of the Scriptures. Israel, a kingdom of priests. The nation of Israel is formed and called by God as a second Adam. And is placed also in the mountain of the Lord, just like Adam. Adam functions as the primary pattern for Israel. And we see the nation already functioning as a kingdom of priests, even before the covenant, when during the Passover, every single household had to do what? Sacrifice. Slaying the lamb. So the whole nation is already acting as what? A priesthood. And they're already teaching others around them about Yahweh who is coming to deliver them. But it's in Exodus 19, Exodus 19, where God makes official. And then starts the chapter 19 through 24, we have the covenant with the nation of Israel. At Sinai, God creates a corporate Adam. A magnificent people group that's responsible for ruling as king, worshiping as priests, and embodying God's law as prophets. Just as God created Adam and Eve and installed them in Eden, so too He creates Israel and installed them in the promised land. And as we come to Exodus 19, here is important for us to understand our identity as a 
royal priesthood tracing back. And in Exodus 19, it's Exodus, Exodus 19 is before what? Exodus what? Exodus 19 before? Oh, 20. What do we have in Exodus 20? Yes, the giving of the Ten Commandments. We are coming to the Mosaic Covenant. That's very important. There is a relationship between Yahweh and the nation of Israel. And look at how he begins. That's the preamble, we could say. The preamble for the giving of the law and then the ratification of the covenant. Verse 4, starting verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. See, people say... Oh, the covenant with Israel is a covenant of works. Law. It's all grace here. It's always grace that initiates any covenant. Our works always flow from God's grace. I, I destroy Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle, on wings like eagle. It's all the Lord being gracious, saving, rescuing. And then he continues. He says, Now therefore, look at that, you have received grace, you are mine. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. They will enjoy even more this privilege that they already have. They are already God's people. Saved, rescued. For all the earth is mine. That's important. I have other people besides you. All the earth is mine. And he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Well, the Lord declares that Israel, now the nation of Israel, will act as a corporate Adam, Adam, royal priesthood. Kingdom of priests. And of course, we know that within this kingdom of priests, this royal priesthood, there was a very specific group of priests. The Aaronic, from Aaron, Aaronic priesthood, or the Levitical priesthood. So, inside the nation of priests, there was a very specific priesthood that would help the nation to be a nation of priests. Another interesting fact is the circumcision. Circumcision was, especially in Egypt, that was reserved for those who were entering the priestly ministry in the temples. So people would be circumcised to be priests in Egypt. And now we have a whole nation that's a nation of priests. Therefore, all the males who represent all the households must be circumcised. It's a picture of the whole Nation as a nation of priests. By looking back at Adam and then looking 
to the role of the Levitical priesthood, we can better understand what means for Israel to be a kingdom of priests. So, first of all, we know that they need to be consecrated to the Lord. Right? That, that's the, the priest. One of the major aspects of a priest is that he's consecrated to the Lord. Devoted to God. Israel as a whole nation is to be wholly consecrated and devoted to Yahweh alone. So you think about all the laws. Why all those laws? Laws about food. Laws about clothing. Laws about uh, gardening. Why? Their entire lives must be devoted to God. Everything they do, from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed, they must be living as a royal priesthood. A people consecrated to the work of the Lord. Also, not only consecrated to the Lord, but they also had a mediatorial role. They were to be mediators. That's what a priest is. A priest is one who stands in the middle between God on the one hand and the rest of the people on the other hand. The job of the priest was to bring God to the people and to bring the people to God. Remember, all the earth is mine. You shall be a kingdom of priests. You will be this mediator between Yahweh and the nations that are lost. As priests, they had this responsibility of showing and shining the light of Yahweh to the dark world. They also had a protective role. You think about the priests. They were supposed to guard the temple. They were supposed to take care of the tabernacle, the sanctuary of the Lord. And the same with the whole nation of Israel. The whole, the whole nation had the duty of caring and protecting and preserving the temple of the Lord, the tabernacle. And they were supposed to hold the Levites accountable if they were not taking care of the tabernacle. So you start seeing the, the different duties that the priests had, Adam had, and now the nation of Israel has. Also a teaching role. One of the primary jobs of the priests, according to the Old Testament, is to teach God's Word, God's instruction. The same with the nation of Israel. They are supposed to be teaching others about the ways of the Lord. But I think the most important of all this is indeed that they, as you put all these things together, is that they are supposed to be a light to the nations. Israel, as God's kingdom of priests, was to be a light to those who are in darkness. And look at Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is beautiful. How the author of the psalm connects the, the covenant with Abraham and now the covenant with Sinai. And he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Where is that from? Numbers. Number 6. Remember, that's the prayer that Aaron, the high priest, would pray every day over the people of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Selah. That Your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Huh. Let me see if I have this quote here. No, I don't, but I'll read to you. It says, in verse 1, we see Israel praying as a priest, since the nation as a whole is invoking the blessing from Aaron. 
The goal or purpose of invoking this blessing is so that salvation may come to the nations. This is no, no other than the goal of the Abrahamic covenant. So you see how the covenants get together. Why should Yahweh bless Israel? So they could show God's light to the world. One scholar, Bio, he says, the entire nation was to live in the midst of God's presence, just like priests. And were all to become like priests, standing in the presence of God in His temple. Look at that, reflecting His glorious light, being intermediaries for the nations, living in darkness and apart from God. So then the question is, did Israel, did the nation of Israel keep their identity and their mission? Did they fulfill the calling of God in their lives? And then in the beginning we see, yes, right, Rahab, we see some people being converted when they leave Egypt already. There are others who are coming to the Israelites, become God-fearing. And we have Rahab, a Gentile, who is converted. She sees the light of Yahweh throughout the Israelites and she comes and embraces the God of Joshua. We have Ruth, the Moabite, who also embraces Yahweh. But we know that overall, as we keep tracing and looking back at the history of Israel, just like Adam, they failed their calling to be a royal priesthood. Much of the prophets, as you're reading the prophets, they have their oracles of condemnation. And it's because they are no longer making the name of the Lord beautiful to the nations, but they're actually what? profaning the name of the Lord. And the condemnation, the judgment comes to the nation and to the priests. They're together. Like Adam, Israel goes into exile and no longer functions as God's priests. But here is the beauty of the gospel. There is always hope. And this hope strays back to Genesis 3.15. And throughout the prophets, we see the prophets speaking. that One day, the day is coming. In the last days... God's people will once again become a nation of priests. Especially Isaiah. Isaiah is the champion in speaking about God's people becoming this royal priesthood once again. So for example, Isaiah 56. What's fascinating about Isaiah 56 is that he, Isaiah prophesies that eunuchs would come and act as priests. Those who could not enter the temple. Gentiles will come. Isaiah 66. Isaiah ends his book by talking about nations, Gentiles, migrating, mixing with God's people, and becoming a kingdom of priests, offering sacrifice to the Lord. Isaiah also speaks that this coming restoration will take place through one man who is a king and priest, priest together. And he's going to actually die as a sacrifice. This priest will become the sacrifice in order to make others 
a kingdom of priests. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Now they apply all that to whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and faithful Son of God, the perfect royal priest. He perfectly fulfills what Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David were not able to do. We see that in the book of Hebrews. His perfect royal priesthood from the order of Melchizedek. He's a king and priest and perfect one. Then in the book of Revelation, the scholars are always debating, okay, is John describing Jesus as a king or as a priest? Do you know when he have those visions of Jesus and he has the sash around and he read the commentaries and he have a group saying, oh, he's describing Jesus as a king. Then you have the other commentaries say, oh, no, he's describing Jesus as a priest. Look at his walking among the churches. He's trimming the lampstands. No, it's the two of them together. He's a king and priest together. As the perfect royal priest, Jesus perfectly lives a consecrated life. He perfectly teaches God's instruction. He perfectly mediates God's presence. And He perfectly shines the light of God's presence into those who are in darkness. Here's what's amazing. Jesus not only offers the perfect sacrifice, but He Himself is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus not only cleanses and protects the temple, but He Himself is the temple. Jesus is both king and priest, and He forms the church in Him as a kingdom of priests. So now you understand why you come here, and the authors of the New Testament can now apply those titles that were given to Israel under the Old Covenant out to the church. Why? Because it has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ now receive the same titles. So now we see when Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's tracing all the way back to Adam and now fulfilled in Christ. And that's who you are because you are in Christ. I love Revelation 1, 5 and 6. Look at that. To Him, look at that. To Him, Jesus, who loves us. Wow. For me, that's just overwhelming. Nobody deserves to be loved by Him. And He loves us. And He has freed us, ransomed us from our sins. That's all language from the Exodus. By His blood, the Passover Lamb. Look at that. First Exodus. God redeeming, ransoming His people. The blood of the Lamb. The people become a, a kingdom of priests. The same thing right here in Revelation. Loves us, freed us, He ransomed us by His blood, the blood of the Lamb, and He has made us a kingdom, priest to His Father. We, the church together, we are a royal priesthood. That's very important. It's always corporately. We are a royal priesthood. Uh, there has been an unhealthy emphasis, I believe, and I understand. It's always extremes. Extremes are always unhealthy. So you have a bunch of men and husbands not leading well their homes. Then you have the other extreme. And then the other extreme is the man is what? 
the priest, the king, and the prophet of his house. I understand the heart there. The, I agree that the men, the husbands, are supposed to wash their wives with the word. But all the Christians together are in Christ, kings and priests. In Christ, a royal priesthood. And the women are going to be held accountable. Not just the men. The church is pictured as a royal priesthood. And as we move to Philippians, as we move to the book of Philippians, we start seeing Paul developing this theology as he sees the church in Christ now who is God's Son, who is the perfect royal priest. And now you start to understand why Paul is applying priestly language to the church. And we see that Paul already used the language of royal priesthood in the sense of the kingdom, royal kingdom. He already used that, and we saw that last Lord's Day as we talk about the church as God's army. Think about we belong to the kingdom, kingdom, a king, royalty, the kingdom of heaven, and each local church is an outpost from heaven. That comes the duty of fighting for the kingdom that we belong to. And that we saw all the military language throughout Philippians. But now Paul also applies the other aspect. It's not just royal, but it's a royal priesthood. And now Paul is going to apply the language of priest to the church. And the first thing that we see in Philippians is how he identifies the church. Look at that. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For we are the circumcision. Wait, Paul. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that was passed to Israel. And that was the mark of Israel. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The churches, Jews and Gentiles, they are the true circumcision. Because as I told you earlier, in ancient Egypt, circumcision was connected primarily to the priests who served in the temple. And now he's applying to all Christians. Why? Because now in Christ we have the true surgery in the most inner part of our lives. And that's the circumcision of our hearts, the surgery of the heart. Through the Spirit empowering us to do a service priests to our God. Okay, Paul says, he continues, and you can see clearly here the connection. For we are the circumcision, priests who worship who worship by the Spirit. Latreo, the Greek word, frequently used for the worship of Israel as a kingdom of priests, and particularly for the priests serving and worshiping inside the temple. Now Paul is applying that to the church. Paul also calls the church as the holy ones. A title of consecration and devotion that was deeply connected with the priests. The priests were often connected to the holiness of the Lord and being holy. So that's our identity. That leads to duties. Protect the temple. Remember, the role of the priests going back to Adam was to protect the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, 
And we as a church have this duty also, as a kingdom of priests. Look what Paul says. Look out. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. And he's not calling just the pastors. He's calling the whole church. The whole church, all of you, we all together have a duty of keeping the church what? Holy. We all here have this duty and this privilege of keeping the church from false teachers and false teachings. Brothers and sisters, you have a responsibility. The books you hold, the books that you pass to others, the sermons that you are passing to other people, you have a responsibility of making sure that you are not bringing unclean things to this church. A kingdom of priests, we all have a duty of keeping the temple clean. Amen? Also, another way of keeping the temple, the sanctuary clean, is by killing self-centeredness, divisions, and that's what Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Division brings pollution into God's sanctuary, therefore they must be put to death. Third, as a kingdom of priests, we are called to bring sacrificial offerings. Sacrificial offerings to the Lord. Part of the priestly service was related to the sacrifices. And as a kingdom of priests, now Paul applies that language from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And he says in chapter 4, verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. All language from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And now he's applying to the offerings that we bring to church. That's beautiful. Our priestly duty of bringing sacrifice to the Lord and the money that we bring must be a sweet aroma. In God's presence. All that we do must be costly and sacrificial. Right? That, that's what a sacrifice is. Think about the, the priests connect to sacrifice. Therefore, all that we do must be sacrificial. Sadly, we live in a time where it's all about my comfort, ease, If anything is going to cost me, I'm out of here. If anything is going to bring some, something that will bother me, I'm out of here. I cannot help. A kingdom of priests, everything that we do must be costly, must be sacrificial. And if your worship doesn't cost you anything, I'm sorry, but that's not a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. A sacrifice, by definition, must be costly. Amen? So then you need to think in practical ways. Okay, what does it cost me to worship in a kingdom of priests? Does it cost me anything? Do I go to bed whenever I feel like? Get up whenever I feel like? Dress the way I like? Give the way I like, sing the way I like, or does it cost me something? 
a kingdom of priests. Our whole lives must be connected to sacrifices. Another priestly duty is praying. And you can see in chapter 4, verse 6, interceding, praying. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's the priestly work. Praying with and praying for others. Fourth, we see a priestly church in Philippians. Just like the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests, that they were supposed to be a light to the nations in darkness, also the church. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holy conduct. Holy conduct to please the Lord and be a light to those around us. How we behave, how we act, must show others that we are a royal priesthood. It's so easy. It's so easy to be always grumbling and murmuring and complaining. Especially to all that's going on around us. Grumbling, murmuring. Because I have to wear a mask. Because he's not wearing a mask. Because he needs to get a vaccine. Because how can he not get a vaccine? Suddenly we start becoming a bunch of grumblers and murmurers. And every time we talk to people, it's just grumbling and murmuring about what's going on. And you go to the grocery store and you're murmuring and grumbling to people around you because they're also grumbling and murmuring. Right? And everywhere you go, and then you have this connection. Oh, we connect. Why? Because you're always grumbling and murmuring and complaining about everything that's going on. How are you being a light? How are you showing yourself to be a kingdom of priests that do not belong to this place here? Our calling is not to please the world, but to please Christ. And people will see a difference in our lives. People will see a difference in our lives. Some will hate us. Many will hate us. And some will be attracted by God's grace. And say, huh, I want this. But you see, we're not only to show the light of the gospel through our actions, but look how Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. Preaching, proclaiming, teaching. That's also our priestly duty. To proclaim the gospel. Teach. God's Torah in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, 
And we start seeing all these things. What is the mission of the church? We start to see all these things, part of our identity. And the final one. Let me finish here. Not only to offer sacrifices, but also to be the sacrifice. We follow our great high priest in that he not only offered the perfect sacrifice, but he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Paul says, that's beautiful. That's one of the most beautiful texts here in Philippians. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is describing their lives. Paul describes their lives as a sacrifice to the Lord on top of the altar. And the main sacrifice is not Paul. The main sacrifice is the church in Philippi. And what is Paul? Paul sees himself as just this, this simple drink offering that was poured on top of the, off, the major offering. That's how Paul sees himself. If I can just be this ordinary sacrifice, joined to your sacrifice, I rejoice and I'm glad. Paul also used the very similar language to Epaphroditus. Okay, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For has he been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near death. He almost became the sacrifice. The word Leitergos, minister, is used in the Greek version, the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, almost exclusively for the service of priests and the Levites in the temple. And Paul is saying that this task, that you look at Epaphroditus, what is his task? Get a bag of money and goodies and travel a long distance. Paul says, this task is a priestly task. What people would see just as mundane, ordinary, just taking some money to Paul, Paul says, actually, that was a priestly service. So, what is the purpose of our church? What is the goal for five years, ten years? Right? <laughs> be the church that we are called to be. That simple. Be who we are in Christ. A kingdom of priests. A royal priesthood. And Philippians help us. There is more. But Philippians here helps us to see some of the things we are supposed to be doing. Being fully devoted and consecrated to the Lord. Worshipping Him. Protecting the sanctuary of the Lord. Shining the light of the gospel. Through actions and words. Giving sacrificially. Being the sacrifice. 
Now, sometimes I wonder how can Christians connected to a local church understand Christians apart from a local church, but how can a Christian who is connected to a local church feel like without purpose? My life is just without purpose. I don't know. I don't know. Look at, look at, from Adam to Christ to us today. How can you see yourself without purpose? All the workings of God throughout history in order to make us a kingdom of priests. And you look at your life and you don't see purpose. And something is messed up with you. Honestly, I never suffer from... What is the purpose of my life? I'm so depressed, I don't know. No. I know... Who we are in Christ. Therefore, I know the purpose of my life. To be a royal priesthood. And do all these things here. That's what we are called to do. And that's what happens. When the gospel comes. When the gospel comes. The gospel comes just like a knife. And kills us. Amen? Amen? That's that's salvation. The gospel comes like a knife. Cuts your throat. All that blood flows. And then the Word of God also comes and brings life. And then you start just living as a living sacrifice. that's, That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does to us. Kill us. Destroy the self-centeredness. Me, 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 me. And make us alive. Now to live as a kingdom of priests. So, my prayer is that the Lord will continue to make us into priests who minister by longing to be just the modest drink offering. We don't need to be. We don't need to be striving to be the great ones where you have this spotlight. If we like Paul, we can say, I rejoice in just being the drink offering upon your sacrifice. I rejoice and I'm glad. May we grow into being a church full of Epaphroditus. Those who minister in a priestly manner to the needs of others, willing to lose our lives if necessary. And my praise that God will continue shining His face as He has been upon this church, that we too will be light shining to this dark world. It's a dark place and it's getting darker and darker. And we have the most blessed, glorious, beautiful privilege of all. To be in His presence, basking under His face all that light like we're doing today and then shine that light to the dark world that's our purpose Father we thank you there you were so kind towards us so gracious that you don't leave us to our own creativity, ingenuity, 
but you are very clear about who we are in Christ and what we are supposed to be doing. Father, we pray that you deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from the temptation of seeing other things that are not right to be our mission and our goal. Help us always to behold our identity in Christ and be motivated to do what we are called to do in Christ. Thank you for this priestly church, so many brothers and sisters who are an example of a priestly life, protecting the church, giving sacrificially, being a light to this world, being the sacrifice, worshiping. Thank you for a wonderful church you have given us. And we need your grace. As the psalmist prayed, we also pray, make your face shine upon us, that others may be see, maybe see your light in us, Lord. Help us to see a world in need of you. And help us to be what you have called us to be, Lord. Thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Thank you for changing our priesthood from priests of the world and Satan to priests who serve our God and King. And those here who are not yours, I pray you would conquer them. Drag them to your kingdom. Help them to taste how good it is to be a royal priest in your kingdom, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.